We have been studying through the gospel of Matthew and Jesus has been teaching us and he's been showing us how to live in the kingdom of God. He's been teaching us and showing us how to live under God's authority. He's been teaching us and showing us how to be salt and light. And today we're going to take a break from where we were in Matthew chapter 9. And we're actually going to jump to the very end and we're going to start in Matthew 26. And so if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. It's going to be a few minutes before we get to it. But if you want to go ahead and turn there in Matthew 26... And just in preparation for when we get there, I want to give you a little context of where we are. If you don't have a Bible, man, we have some on the back table. We'd love to give you one as a gift from us. Uh, Please take one before you leave today. If you don't own a Bible, please take one as a gift from us to you. But let me give you a little context of what we're going to see here in Matthew 26 and 27 and 28. It was Passover. Now, Passover was something that the Israelites would come to Jerusalem and celebrate. They would take a trip from wherever they were, and they would return to Jerusalem to celebrate this week-long celebration. Passover was one of three festivals the Israelites would make uh, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem and to the temple to celebrate. Passover was the largest of these three festivals. It was an eight-day feast where Israel would look back and they would remember how God had delivered them from slavery and bondage in Egypt, something that we see in the book of Exodus, if you ever want to go and read that story. So they're there in Jerusalem. They were there to celebrate how God had delivered them. And they would take a lamb every single year, and they would remember how God had passed over the homes of those who had believed and obeyed God, and therefore had sacrificed the lamb and put the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. The death angel that came through Egypt that night, killing all of the firstborn in all of Egypt, would pass over the houses that were covered in the blood. They would remember how God delivered those who believed and trusted and obeyed him, putting the lamb on the post. It's estimated that this year that we're going to be looking at here in Matthew 26, that there were close to a million people who had gathered in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas like Bethany for this Passover. It's also estimated that there were nearly a hundred thousand lambs that were sacrificed that year in celebration of Passover. But unknown to many of the people there that morning, there would be another lamb that would be sacrificed that year that would be once for all, the Lamb of God. Jesus had a big following at this, this point. Many people had either seen miracles or heard about him or heard his teaching. And so they knew that Jesus would be coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And even though that they knew Jesus was coming to celebrate Passover, the chief priests and the religious leaders, they planned to wait until the festival was nearly over before they made their move to try to arrest Jesus. They didn't want to do it publicly and his followers to start a riot in the streets. Because Rome would have to come in and take control. You see, Jerusalem and Israel at that point was occupied by another nation. They were occupied by the Romans. And Rome, they would let people keep their religion and their practices so long as those people paid their taxes to Rome. 
and that their religions and their practices didn't really interfere with anything that Rome was trying to do. But a riot in the streets of Jerusalem with a million people packed into the city streets would cause some trouble, and Rome would come down full force on the city. And so the Jewish people, they wanted, even though the religious leaders wanted to take Jesus out, they wanted to wait until the festival was over. But what they didn't know was that an opportunity to take Jesus out sooner would make itself available through one of his very followers. So Jesus and his disciples, they make their way to Jerusalem, but on their way in, they stop at a nearby city of Bethany, and there they celebrate and they eat dinner at uh, Simon the leper's house. And while they're there having dinner, a woman comes in, and she breaks a jar of expensive perfume, and she opens it up, and she pours it and anoints Jesus. Now, this would have been a, a pretty common practice. It kind of seems kind of odd to us because it's something we don't usually do. But this would have been a pretty common practice for uh, the Jewish people, especially around fest, uh, festivals and festivities and celebrations, for them to, to anoint an honored guest in somebody's home with oil. But it seems that Jesus' disciples, led by Judas, voiced their apparent opposition to this. They say, Jesus, this, this perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor, they said. But the truth was that Judas was just concerned about lining his own pockets. He had been in charge of the money and probably had been skimming for a while. But it seems that this is a tipping point for Judas. So during this week of festivities, they are making their way from Bethany into Jerusalem and then back to Bethany and then back into Jerusalem during the day and most likely spending the night in Bethany and outside of the city. But on one of their trips into Jerusalem, it seems that Judas kind of breaks away from the group. He slips off into the crowd and nobody knows it. Maybe they think he's going to make preparations for something, but he was going to make preparations. He was going to conspire with the chief priests to hand Jesus over. Most likely Thursday of that week, that evening, Jesus heads into Jerusalem for what will be the last time before his death. He goes into Jerusalem to celebrate this final Passover before he would make his way to the cross. He had sent some of his disciples ahead of him to prepare the meal and prepare the room and get everything ready for the meal. And again, this meal of Passover would be to help remind the Israelite people of the story of how God delivered Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt. But this Passover would become the Passover that God would deliver not just Israel, but all of mankind from our bondage to sin once for all. So Jesus, he gathers in the upper room with his disciples, including Judas, who hadn't slipped out at this point yet. And he's there and he's sharing this Passover meal with them. They would take the unleavened bread and they would remember how Israel, the night that, that God rescued them from Egypt, had to eat in haste. And so they couldn't, they didn't have time to let the bread rise because the next morning God would come and deliver them from bondage in Egypt. They would take and they would eat the lamb and they would be reminded of all the lambs that were slaughtered that night in Egypt and, and whose blood covered the doorposts of their homes to protect them. 
But even with all of these reminders, no one knew that a Passover, this Passover would change everything. And so Jesus, as they're eating this meal, starts to point out the things that God was already doing at this Passover. Look with me in Matthew 26 and verse 26. It says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. And then he took the cup. And when they had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you that I will not drink from this, the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus, he takes this bread that would remind them of the bread that they ate in Egypt the night that God delivered them from bondage. And he takes this bread and he says, hey, now you're going to remember how I sacrificed myself and you're going to be reminded of my body. Now these guys didn't fully understand what Jesus was talking about, right? They, they didn't grasp what Jesus was getting ready to, to go through and to do. But in the days and the weeks to come, they would. Jesus, in the same way, takes the cup and he tells them that this would become now a reminder of his blood and of this new covenant that God will make, not just with Israel, but with all who will believe in Jesus. N.T. Wright said this, When Jesus wanted to explain to his disciples what his death was all about, he didn't give them a, a theory, he gave them a meal. Jesus took a meal that Israel used to remind them of how God delivered them from bondage in Egypt, and he used it to remind all of us of how God delivered all of us from our bondage to sin through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, His very Son, Jesus. And so, every time that we gather together as followers of Jesus, we partake in this meal and in this reminder. We remember Jesus' body that He laid down for us through the bread. And we remember through the cup, his blood that was poured out for our forgiveness. Now, usually here at Journey Church, we do this a little bit later in our worship gathering. But I thought how appropriate it would be as we are looking at this first time that Jesus instituted this communion, this Lord's Supper for us, for us to do this now. And then we'll come back together and we will continue our study of these last few hours of Jesus's life. So if you didn't grab communion on your way in, you can raise your hand, and we've got some guys that will bring that to you right now. And just as Jesus did that Passover night, let us take, let us take the bread, and let us take the cup, and let's remember the sacrifice that he has made for us. Let's take time to examine ourselves and confess our sins to God. And let's remember and proclaim not only the body and the blood of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus that brings us forgiveness and that brings us life. Let's remember together.
the sacrifice of the Lamb of God that delivers us from our sins. So take this time now. Let's remember and proclaim together through communion. You see, that very night, Jesus will be betrayed by one of his friends, Judas. He will be tried for crimes that he was not guilty of, and the next day executed for something that he didn't do. During the meal, Judas slips away again to go out and finish the deal that he had started earlier in the week. Jesus and the other eleven, they head out to the nearby Mount of Olives to a garden that was nearby, a place that they went to so often that Judas knew exactly where to lead the angry mob. After worshiping through a song, Jesus and the other eleven, they go off into the garden And he goes off by himself to pray, taking his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. The hour was already late and even early morning at this point. And Jesus takes his closest friends to keep watch as he prays. And he says these words found in Matthew 26, verse 38. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I believe that the weight of what laid ahead of Jesus, the full weight of that was on his heart and his mind. At some point, the full weight of sins of the all mankind was being placed on Jesus, He that knew no sin has become sin for us. Three times Jesus goes and prays, Lord, take this cup from me. If there's any other way, Father, please take this from me. And yet, each time Jesus submits himself to God the Father's will. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Three times Jesus goes and he pours his heart out to God. Three times he comes back to find his closest friends that had deserted him. Asleep. Jesus literally had the weight of the world on his shoulders, and Peter, James, and John couldn't keep watch for one hour. And so, as Jesus expresses his disappointment in his closest friends, here comes another friend, Judas, leading an armed crowd to find him. They arrest Jesus, and they lead him away to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, and they start bringing false accusations against him. But even with all of these different testimonies, the angry mob can't agree with each other. They had to make up things, because Jesus was without sin. And even though they didn't like Jesus, and even though they wanted to take Jesus out, they couldn't go to the people nor to Pilate with, well, you know, I just don't like Jesus, so will you kill him for us? He remains silent through all of this. And so the high priest steps in. He too wanted Jesus taken down. But he knew that he couldn't take these false reports to Pilate. And so he asked Jesus point blank, Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Now if Jesus answered this question of whether or not he was the Messiah, the Son of God or not, and he wasn't, 
then he would be committing blasphemy, which is what the high priest will accuse Jesus of. If Jesus claimed to be equal with God, if he claimed to be the Messiah, even if Pilate and the Romans didn't care about Jesus' claim, that would be enough for the religious leaders to stir the crowd to force Pilate's hand. And so I want you to look at what Jesus responds to the high priest's question about him being the Messiah, the Son of God. We find this in verse 64 of Matthew 26. He says, You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds in heaven. When the high priest, then the high priest tore his clothes and he said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And the crowds erupt. He deserves to die. It's at this point that the physical abuse begins. Spitting on his face, hitting him in the head, slapping him, mocking him. And the high priest has enough to stir up the crowd and the angry mob with enough to push Pilate's hand to put Jesus to death. It's moved from late evening into early morning on that Friday. And so this angry mob comes knocking at the door of Pilate's house. They wanted to act quickly while they had the momentum of this angry mob. The confusion played to the religious leader's hand and to their advantage. They needed Pilate to do their dirty work for them. But Pilate was going to do his own investigation of Jesus. They knew that Jesus' claim of being the Messiah and the Son of God would mean very little to Rome or to Pilate. And so they come to Pilate and say that Jesus was leading an uprising against Rome. Now this would have got Pilate's attention. Someone leading a rebellion against Rome. But Pilate sees through the religious leaders' lies And he's amazed that even with all of these accusations that are flying against Jesus, Jesus isn't trying to defend himself. Jesus isn't fighting for his rights. Jesus is silently taking the rap for something that he clearly was innocent of, something that he was clearly not guilty for. And Pilate, he knows it. He knows that Jesus is innocent. Pilate finds no grounds to hold Jesus, let alone to have Jesus killed. But in the back of Pilate's mind, he also knows that there are a million people packed in the streets of Jerusalem. And this angry mob can soon turn into a riot. And this will look bad not just for the Jewish people in Jerusalem, but it would look bad for Pilate. You can't even keep this backwoods Jerusalem under control, Pilate. Who are you? So Pilate, he offers a choice, hopefully to wash his hands of having an innocent man put to death uh, and uh, to wash his hands to appease the crowd. He, it was a custom of this time at festivals for them to release one person, one prisoner that was chosen by the crowds, maybe like the movie Gladiator style with a thumbs up or thumbs down. 
And so he says, who do you want me to release? Do you want me to release Jesus, who is the king of the Jews, or Barabbas? And they choose Barabbas. And so then Pilate puts it back on the crowd, and he asks them, so then what shall I do with Jesus? And we find this interaction in chapter 27 of Matthew, verse 22. He says, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. And they answered, crucify him. Why? What crimes has he committed? asked Pilate. They shouted all the louder, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was, was starting, he took the water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Pilate He wanted nothing to do with this. He wanted to wash his hands of this. He knew that Jesus was innocent. And he also didn't want the crowd to turn into a mob that would turn into a riot in the streets of Jerusalem with already a massive amount of people there. Jerusalem was a powder keg that was getting ready to explode. And not because Pilate found Jesus guilty, but simply to appease the crowd to keep them from turning to a riding mob. Pilate has Jesus beaten and hands him over to be crucified. The Roman soldiers were experts at torture and execution. This is what they had trained all of their life for. They flogged Jesus. Now, a Roman flogging was a brutal beating that always preceded the execution of capital punishment for a male offender though it could be its own separate punishment. The prisoner that was being flogged was stripped of their clothes. Oftentimes they were tied to a post, and they were beaten on the back several times with guards using short leather whips studded with sharp pieces of bone or metal. There was no limit to the amount of blows that the prisoner could take. In fact, oftentimes flogging in of itself would lead to death. On top of the physical abuse, they mocked Jesus. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a purple robe on his shoulder. And they would come bowing before him, hitting him on the head every time. Hail, King of the Jews. And then they led Jesus out to crucify him. Jesus was so weak from the abuse and the beatings that he couldn't even carry his own cross. And so they forced a man who was there in the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, who was there for Passover with his kids, they forced him to carry Jesus' cross all the way to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Most likely this place was right outside the city gates so that everyone going into Jerusalem or coming out of Jerusalem would see those that were crucified. You see, crucifixion, It wasn't just to punish the people who were being crucified. But crucifixion was to set an example to all who saw. This is what happens when you come against Rome. This is what you can expect. And so they crucified Jesus in between two criminals. Crucifixion was a long, painful death. 
It wasn't the nailing the person to the beams that actually killed the person. It was a slow suffocation that oftentimes would take many days for that person to die. The person that was crucified, they would be nailed to these beams and they would be leaned forward. And so every time that they would have to take a breath, they would have to use all of their strength on that little post that their feet were nailed to, to push up, and all the strength in their arms to push up just to catch a breath. And over time, as their strength was gone, and their arms and their legs, they would no longer be able to push themselves up to breathe anymore. And so their breathing would shallow even more. Their heart rates would become weakened. Their breathing would shallow and fluid would begin to build around their hearts and their lungs and they would slowly suffocate. Crucifixion was a horrendous way to die. And on top of the physical pain that Jesus was going through, as he was hanging there, people were insulting him and mocking him. Jesus had been convicted and tried of crimes that he didn't commit, and he was being executed for these crimes that he was innocent of. It was nine in the morning when they first hung Jesus on the cross. At noon, darkness fell over the entire city until about three. Jesus had remained silent through his trials. He wasn't guilty, but he raised no defense. Jesus knew that he wasn't guilty, but he knew that you and I are. So even though he was without sin in that moment, he took on himself the sins of the whole world all at once. And on top of the physical suffering that Jesus was facing, the emotional weight of being falsely accused and ridiculed, Jesus took on the sins of the whole world all at once. The full wrath of God on himself, and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, verse 50, says, When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died raised raised to life. And they came out of their tombs after Jesus' resurrection and they went to the holy city and they appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were with him were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Jesus breathed his last. And as Jesus died, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was was torn. This thick curtain was torn from top to bottom. The centurion who had been placed in charge of Jesus' execution witnesses all of these things that are going on as Jesus breathes his last. And he says, surely this man was the son of God. He had recognized what the religious leaders hadn't. That this Jesus surely must have been the son of God. Soon after Jesus' death, 
Joseph of Arimathea, who was a religious leader as well, but who had not conspired to kill Jesus, but had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He goes to Pilate in private and he asks for Jesus' body, but Pilate's pretty surprised because, as we said, crucifixion often takes days for people to die. And so he's surprised that only after a few hours, Jesus was already dead. Now, the Roman soldiers were experts at execution, and they confirmed that Jesus actually was already dead. The Sabbath would start at nightfall, and so quickly Joseph had to put and bury Jesus' body before sundown, before they were able to, to not able to do anything on that Sabbath day. So he buries Jesus quickly. Some of the women who had followed Jesus since Jerusalem who had seen the suffering that Jesus had gone through, who had stood at the feet of Jesus as he was hanging on the cross, also followed Joseph all the way to the tomb, and they watched where that he placed them, so that when Sabbath was over, on the first day of the week, they could come back and fully prepare Jesus' body for, for his burial. But what they didn't know was they wouldn't have to. Because something amazing was going to happen Something that would change everything for everyone. And we find that in chapter 28 of Matthew. It says, After the Sabbath, at the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went, and took a, uh, went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had come down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were afraid of him, that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he laid. Those seven words would change everything for everyone. He's not here. He has risen. Jesus was without sin. But on the cross, he took on the sins, the full wrath of God. He took on what you and I deserve, what we have earned with our sin. He died the death that we deserve so that the wrath that we deserve would also be taken on him. He has taken on the payment that you and I have earned with our sins on himself. But then Jesus proves that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God. On the first day of the week, that Sunday morning, he arose from the dead. The resurrection changes everything. But friends, the question that you must answer today is, has it changed everything for you? Peter and John, a little bit later, in the book of Acts chapter 4, will heal a lame man in the name of Jesus, and then they're arrested by these same religious leaders who had arrested Jesus and had him crucified. And they begin to testify about this Jesus whom... Uh, for the acts of kindness they had done. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and being asked how he was healed, then know this, 
you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found only or found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Friends, salvation is only found in Jesus because God raised him to life again. Because of the resurrection, salvation is only found in Jesus. Now friends, maybe you're listening this morning and you're hearing the horrific events that Jesus went through and the suffering and the pain that he's went through. And maybe you've also just been thinking and feeling for a while that there's something broken and messed up inside of you. Friends, let me tell you, that's because like me, you are a sinner. And we are broken because of that sin and we deserve the wrath of God. And maybe you've even tried to, to fix that brokenness on your own. Maybe you've said, you know what, if I could just get ahead, if I just had a little bit more money, if I just had a little bit more success, or man, if I just had that one relationship with that one person, they would complete me and fix this brokenness this inside of me. Maybe if I just worked really hard, I could, I could get through this and, and fix this. Or maybe you've even tried to forget about your brokenness or tried to numb the pain with the bottle or with drugs, anything to numb it. Friends, I want you to know this morning that none of those things will fix it. None of those things will cover it up. None of those things will get it right. None of those things will get rid of it. But God loves you so much that He sent His Son Jesus to fix what you and I can't. What you and I have broken because of sin. Jesus took the payment of our sins on Himself on the cross. Jesus took the debt of the wrath of God on Himself and salvation is found only in Him. And Jesus is calling you today to come and put your trust in Him. To come and repent of your sins. And to meet Him in baptism today. Our worship team is going to come and they're going to lead us in this closing song. And if you're ready to be joined with Jesus for the first time today, if you're ready to repent and be baptized, won't you come today? I'm going to head out to the lobby. Let's come. Let's talk about what Jesus has done for you and how you need to respond to him. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that even though Jesus was innocent, he wasn't guilty. He became guilty for you. And for me, he took our place. Jesus died to pay our debts, but God raised him on the third day to life. And salvation is only found in Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. But has it changed everything for you? If it has, let's go into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, to our schools, to our community. And let's shout it from the rooftops that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And His resurrection has changed 
everything for us. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that even though we are undeserving and even though we deserve your wrath and punishment, that you sent your son Jesus to die to take our place. Father, we thank you that those seven words that the angel spoke to those women who came looking for, for the dead, he's not here. He has risen. Those seven words change everything for everyone. Father, if there are those that are listening this morning who have not been changed by this message, would you call them to yourself today? Would you lead them to put their their faith and their trust in you and to repent of their sins and to come today and be baptized? For those of us who already have, Father, would you lead us Would you lead us to go out into our workplaces, to our homes and our neighborhoods, and let everyone know that salvation is only found in your son Jesus because you raised him to life and you have seated him at your right hand and all power and authority is under his control. We thank you for your son Jesus. We ask all of this in his name. Amen.